This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Guys, I cannot believe I'm about to say this to you, but the first guest on my podcast is Gloria Steinem. My hero is here to talk all things journalism, activism, community organizing, and more. And while I'm sure you know about Gloria, just in case you don't, she is a writer, a political activist, and an organizer, a founder of New York and Ms. Magazines. She has written incredible books, including My Life on the Road, Revolution from Within, Outrageous Acts, and Everyday Rebellions. She co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, the Miss Foundation for Women, the Free to Be Foundation, and the Women's Media Center in the United States. She is one of the most incredible leaders of modern day advancements for women, civil rights. She is just it. She's it. And she's here. And we had such a good time having this conversation that we wound up going out to lunch and I will never recover. So join me in my fangirling and please enjoy this conversation with Gloria Steinem. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for coming. Me too, me too. It's great to see you. We were all talking this morning and, and they were asking when you and I first met and I, and I said, I can't quite recall but I'll never forget seeing you at the first Women's March. Yes, I think, I, right. And it was just yeah. so lovely. Yeah. You are an icon anywhere you go, but in a, in a space like that especially, being at the Women's March, every single person is so excited to see you and bolstered by your presence well, and your I'm message. I'm so excited and, to see them. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> so I feel But it was exactly just so kind of you. Yeah. you. You know, you stopped to give me a hug, and I was like, 
I can't believe this wonderful woman is what, making the time in this moment. I don't know. It just it was Look, it was it, it was is very a total kind. accident, as you know, mm-hmm. because you're also in the media. Who who is recognized and who isn't? I right. mean, it's just because you're in the media, right? Right. Well, and you, so your you know, story. But we're all doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many of us out there, and so many people working. But I I think that the your rise is well, such an interesting I've been thing here to longer. get into. <laughs> just a what. A year. Um, But before we get into, you know, the roads that you've traveled and and the history of your career and your activism, I'm always so curious when I look at people who I consider to be, you know, icons or mentors. I wonder what you were like as a kid. Were you were you this fearsome? you know, moral fighter in, wrapped up in, in a little girl? Or or did you come to this later? You know, what, what mm. was Gloria like as a child? It's hard to emotionally get ourselves all the way back there, mm. except that I do think that we are born who we are. Mm. You know, we're some unique combination of heredity and environment that could never have happened before or again. And I suppose... That it's important to say that because otherwise, if we're treated like blank slates, mm. that you know, p- people, including parents, think they can make into anything, then it's it's a real problem. So I I suppose I was, you know, I was collecting dolls from many nations. Mm. <laughs> I was in love with animals totally. The dog would have six puppies. I couldn't give up the six puppies. The puppies would have puppies. We would end up with 13 dogs. You know? um, but in a way, what was a stroke of luck, though it didn't seem like it at the time, was that I wasn't going to school very much. I mean, I would go till Halloween, say, and then it got cold and we would get in our house trailer and uh, start on our way to Florida or California. Hmm. And I think that was lucky, really, because I wasn't... Um, trained in a certain way, you know, I mean, I hope schools are better now, but then, you know, it was about Dick and Jane readers and, you know, it was Mm -hmm. very gendered and kind of racialized. So I was probably lucky to miss that. That's so interesting. I think about, you know, we have a lot of conversations now in the current landscape about what privilege means. And I think there's such a privilege of exposure that is a frontier I really like to get into with people because when you do get to grow up in a space where you are exposed to different people, different culture, different food, different climate, different socioeconomic structures, you you really learn so much about people. And that's a really interesting thing. I'd never considered that at the time that you were a child – being exposed to so many different kinds of people and places was was actually quite radical, mm. um, given that everything was very paint-by-numbers, stay in the lines, especially for little girls. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I mean, I'm not at all leaving aside uh, good food and a house and medical care and all the things mm. that economics bring you. But aside from that, in a way, people who live in a white ghetto are culturally deprived, you know, it's kind of crazy when mm-hmm. you think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, those charts of 100 people in the world, you know, how many would be white? I don't know. It's like 10 or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, who wants to be confined that way in the world? Um, to be reduced. I, 
Yeah, no, I mean, I used to think that, that white families should have had to pay to have their children bust as a privilege so that their kids would not grow up as crazy as they were. <laughs> this, of course, was not an idea that, you know, was practical. But I do think that part of the problem is raci- of racism is that we assume that one thing is superior to the other when it's not. Yeah, it's about access. There, there is no such thing as superiority. And the, the systems that have kept that white supremacist patriarchy operating for so long have historically bifurcated so many other groups mm-hmm. who have not benefited from supremacy. And one of the things that I was really struck by as a kid learning about your legacy and studying your writing um, was to see you so firmly entrenched in a commitment to eradicate sexism and racism together. Because if you think back, you know, we're about to celebrate the centennial of suffrage, but that's white women's suffrage. And there was essentially, you know, a choice to be made on the table that oppressed people could fight together or white women could be given the right to vote. And as I think is our more base, you know, evolutionary tribalistic sensibility, white women said, well, we want what we want. And and there was so much divide, mm. and women of color didn't get the right well, until there, later. There was a there was a big divide, but it, it's heartening to know they started out together yes. because universal adult suffrage mm-hmm. was the goal, which meant the abolition of slavery and the vote for everybody. Yes, who divided it? I think, although I'm no historian. Uh, were what you might call the white liberal guys in Washington who decided to give the vote to black men first. Mm. Uh, And that drastically divided the coalition without really, I mean, you know, the idea, I mean, there were just too many women, I suppose. It was too scary. I don't know why. Anyway, they divided. What were we going to do? Yeah, they divided. Those radical ladies. But but of course, then the vote wasn't real in the South anyway, because you had violence and poll taxes and crazy literacy tests that kept black men from voting. Mm -hmm. Um, So Journer Truth uh, was saying, no, we should wait. You know, we should all do this together. And in the beginning, Fred, Frederick Douglass also said we should all do this together. Mm-hmm. But then he, I think, just really believed that that was all that was going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. for, for men, Negro men, as would have been said then, to get the vote. But it, it's heartening to me that we started out united. Yeah. And my hope now, and, and I think when I look back and I see photographs of you and Dorothy marching together and protesting together and I see women, you know, coming into these circles to advocate for one another now and, and so many white women talking about what privilege looks like and how to be allies to women of color, my my hope is that, you know, the the trickery of the patriarchy and the supremacy then that said, oh, if we can just split the groups that we've held at bay for so long, we can keep them all powerless in certain areas. I'm hoping that those are the lessons that help us do it differently mm-hmm. this time around. Well, I, I think at the very base bottom level, we have to understand that you can't perpetuate racism without sexism. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you control who has children with whom, pretty soon people fall in love with each other and the racial lines begin to go. It's the same in India, say, the caste system. Mm-hmm. So 
in it, to maintain a racist system, you have to be sexist. You have to control women. So the superior group, the Brahmins or white women or whoever it is, are, are restricted and, the, and women of color are exploited mm. uh, to produce cheap workers and so on. But the two things can absolutely not be disentangled. There's mm. no way you can fight one without the other. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just impossible. And so how do you get to this point where you've learned so much about the nuance and the complexity of these systems you know, from not, being— I, I, I really feel like it's not the nuance or complexity. It's just sort of common sense. Hmm. But common I mean, sense isn't common. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, <laughs> how are you going to maintain racism unless you control who has children with whom? You can't. Right. Right. So right. they just go together. I guess I just wonder about the—I do wonder about the journey. You know, you, you talk about when you would pack up in the family trailer, and I know your dad was a traveling antique salesman. What does childhood look like for you being in and out of school and traveling around how how does the road begin to move from you know being an elementary school kid and and take you through let's say high school mm. well i i don't i think i went my first full year to school when i was about 13 maybe something mm. like that otherwise i would go till it was cold and then <laughs> it was and i was actually shocked when i went to school because I was used to being with grown-ups, so I had this incredible vocabulary. Mm. On the other hand, I knew nothing about math. I mean, I was just hopeless, and I still am. Mm. So, you know, it was, and 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 also, I made jokes, and kids, it hurt people's feelings, and I learned not to do that. You know, mm. so I mean, I had to learn to be with with kids my own age, to rein in that sort of adult right. sarcasm and right, interesting, but. You know, I mean, I had best girlfriends and pajama parties and mm. boyfriends on the football team. <laughs> the only rule in my high school in Toledo was that you had to stop playing football when you were 22 <laughs> because wow. they, were, they had such a great team. They would, you know, every year play some team in Texas. They could have beaten any Ivy League team, I'm sure. And that was, you know, the feature of, of the school. And then these guys, if they didn't get a football scholarship, went to work in the factories. Wow. And what did you do after high school? Well, I always was in a slightly different place because, I mean, my friends' families were Polish and Hungarian families who often, my friends would be ashamed that their parents didn't speak English that well or maybe even in their own language, they weren't literate. But I always knew I would go to college because my mother was obsessed with the idea that her two daughters go to college. So that was, and I had books at home, lots of books. So that was lucky and and different. When did you start with the tap dancing? Was that as a little kid? Yes. uh, um, My father and his summer resort had floor shows and, and the cigarette girl and other people would teach me how to tap dance. And, and then I took tap dancing lessons. Then I took ballet lessons. Then I had this completely bonkers idea that I was going to dance my way out of Toledo, Ohio, into the hearts of Americans. You know, because I, I, if you're a little girl looking for a way out of your conventional, of what you see, mm-hmm. you, sh- women in show business are all you see. Right. It, it's like boys who see sports. You know, so I completely irrationally thought <laughs> that I could, 
And I, uh, in the summertime, I danced in operettas and got, I lied about my age, you know. And I where was, was like that? 14. I was lying, saying I was 18 in Toledo. In Toledo, okay. Right. And then what happens for college? Well, at first, I lived with my sister for a year. So I went to an actual, not crazy, good high school in, in uh, Washington, which was mm. a shock. <laughs> I couldn't believe that they'd taken the college boards for practice. I said, why would you do that? Why would you take an exam more than once? Mm. I mean, these kids were, you know. Very academic. Yes. I mean, they were on a college track. I'd never experienced that. Right? Um, they couldn't dance very well, I noticed. But, <laughs> <laughs> but We didn't have lunchtime dancing like we did in Toledo. Right? Wow. So I got to college, and my sister had gone to Smith nine years, ten years before me. Mm -hmm. So I had some idea. Actually, they took me as a legacy, I'm sure, because I, I didn't get in. I was refused by Cornell, by Stanford, by practically everybody else because of the crazy schools I'd gone to. But I think I was a legacy at Smith. And I, th I was in heaven at Smith. You know, mm -hmm. they, they give you three meals a day. You don't have to cook for yourself. They give you all the books you want to read. What could be better than that? Wow. And there were all these other students complaining. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, why are you complaining? What were they complaining about? Well, they'd gone, gone to prep schools and, you know, I mean, they had a whole different s standard. And they also dressed differently. Do, do students still wear Bermuda shorts? In They're those? kind of in right now, yeah. Because well, in those days, everybody wore Bermuda shorts, and I thought they were profoundly ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, all the women in my dormitory collected money to get me a pair of Bermuda shorts because I was always wearing blue jeans and loafers with pennies in them. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I, I think that Bermuda shorts right now are very hot because of the U.S. women's national team, which really should just be the oh, that's U.S. A, national team. That's a very team. good reason. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, that's like, these great. ladies are very swaggy, and they're, they're doing a lot of, like, Tom Brown menswear cool suits with shorts, and mm -hmm. now everyone wants to wear Bermuda shorts, and I'm very grateful that I'm a bit of a hoarder and never got rid of mine from the last <laughs> time that they were cool because now I can just channel Megan Rapinoe all of the time. It was, I, I have to say that the this uh, parade here for, the, you know, for the championship yeah. team was so great. So cool. Well, just wonderful. They're such incredible representatives of what America is and should be and can be, and they're they're leaders who I really love to watch. And, and I see now that even some of the sponsors are saying, no, they should get equal pay. Mm -hmm. right. About time. We're all over here going like, it's been time. <laughs> um, okay, so Smith was obviously a wonderful experience. But I, I've heard you talk about how education, uh, I imagine in high school and perhaps in college, you tell me, You've said that it was really just all about how to be a wife. It was it was nothing about society. It was nothing about politics. So how do you change that in the course of your mm. college career? You know, what what were what were women primarily being taught? Well, we weren't exactly being taught how to be a wife because we were studying Plato and Aristotle and, you mm. know, 
uh, not noticing that Aristotle said women were so sinful that their faces would break them. I mean, you know, there was we were studying <laughs> terrible stuff, <laughs> but classically hmm. t- terrible stuff. But the expectation was that we would we were getting an education, as the president of the college at the time said, if we're going to have educated children, we have to have educated mothers. Oh. And we were going to marry somebody of a suitable class and income. Hmm. And, and that, be an was, impressive that was spouse. going to be our lives. Now, hmm. Sylvia Plath was on campus at the same time as me. No. I didn't, I didn't know, know her. She was kind of a legend because even the professors said her poetry was good. So she was. Uh, and if you'll remember, when she was a student, she tried to commit suicide. Yes. And lost a year of college education because of that. Mm. So, you know, I didn't know her, but I can see how the distance for her between what she was experiencing and what was in her head and heart was just very painful. Painful to be in that space Mm. between, I imagine. Now there's a poetry center at Smith named after her. Wow. It's incredible when I take a moment and think about the strides that we've made. And, you know, I find myself constantly on fire about how far we have to go. But, Good. <laughs> but where we've come from, you know, the the idea that for a person who is sensitive, and I imagine wildly empathetic as you'd have to be mm. to be Sylvia Plath, that existing could be insufferable because you felt trapped by the world. You felt so subjugated as a woman. That's That's something that I think a lot of people don't take time to think about is, is what oppression feels like and, and the amount mm-hmm. of toxic stress that it puts you under. Yes, and, and she had a familial experience that I don't fully understand, but you can see in her poetry, you know, that her father was absent but played this huge role in her life. Mm. And then, unfortunately, she married a man who was just as bad as her father. Wild. Wow. To be, I can't imagine what it would be like to be walking across campus and think, there goes Sylvia Plath. You know? Yes. Well, no, she was a legend. Yeah. You know, even, even while we were together there mm-hmm. or distantly together. Yeah. And there were, you know, the, the, the women I was totally knocked out by, first of all, they'd gone to prep school, so they already knew everything, you know, that, <laughs> that we were learning. Secondly, I remember at Christmas time they would come back with suntans, and I thought it's amazing how many of these students live in Florida or California. I'd never heard of going on a winter vacation, right. so I didn't realize, you know. So it it was kind of a, a social education for me too. Sure, and and people were very kind to me, you know, and I made good friends. So. You don't wind up with, as they say, your MRS in college. You don't leave there married to a suitable man. Well, I got engaged. I mean, everybody else was getting engaged. Oh, who'd you get engaged to? <laughs> a wonderful man named Blair Shotsonoff, who to this day is the handsomest person I've ever seen in my life. The, the house mother in our house was so knocked out with him that she would lend us her car. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Uh, he was 10 years older, so, of course, you know, he was leading a much more sophisticated life. Okay. And, I mean, I had discovered sex, and he was this great person, so I didn't know what to do, so I got engaged. But it was clear to me that I shouldn't get married, mm. so I escaped to India. 
kind of a dramatic escape where I lived for two years. There's your Hollywood story. That feels like a movie. (laughs) How old were you when you went to India? 22. Okay. Mm -hmm. And was it after that? I I have so many questions. Hold on. So you go to India. Where are you living? What are you doing there? I haven't a clue what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> so I just went. Uh, where what? Where did you f- land? In New Delhi. New Delhi. Okay. Uh, I had. I had. First of all, I I left because I was trying to escape this engagement and imminent marriage. Okay. I went to London. I waited for a visa in London. No visa was forthcoming. I was there for like three months. During that time, I discovered I was pregnant, you know, and Mm. I had no idea what to do. And I just lucked into, it's a long story, but anyway, a doctor who was, you know, willing to do an abortion, providing, as I put in as a dedication in my roadbook, providing that two things, one, that I never tell anyone his name, Mm. and two, that I do what I wanted to do with my life. Wow. A wonderful man. Wow. So because of that, I finally got a visa, went to India. There was a a woman there who worked for the Ford Foundation who served as a kind of uh, guarantor. I didn't even know her, but anyways, it was nice of her (laughs) to do this. And I went to live in the women's college at the Miranda House at the University of Delhi. So I had that period of time of becoming accustomed Mm. you know I didn't know I thought maybe I should wear my own clothes because after all and then other students kept bringing me saris (laughs) so I started to wear a sari and I Mm. continued for two years to wear saris and And then uh, gradually I traveled around India right and what were you seeing on your travels How, how did that start opening you to that part of the world uh well, the, the interesting thing about India is that after you're there for a month, it, it isn't like, you know, we think that things are different there, mm-hmm. but of course, they're not different to the people who are living there. So I was supposed to be writing fellowship reports, and I had a hard time because, you know, it just seemed normal, if you know what I mean, what, whatever it was that was going on. Mm-hmm. But it was fairly close to independence. So in a way, India was what South Africa became, you know, a source of inspiration for countries getting out of colonialism and Mm. becoming independent. There were a lot of Gandhians, a lot of activists. I lucked into walking through villages with a Gandhian group. You just live every day, and certainly there was no plan to what I was doing. And being part of that group and witnessing, as you spoke about earlier, you know, the caste system and the oppression of, of women that exist in its own way everywhere, what, how did the education of Gandhi, the, the nonviolence and, and that kind mm. of protest, how, how did that Well, what, what was interesting was that not then, but when I went back to see a dear friend there in India, uh, maybe 10 years later, we decided that Gandhian tactics were well suited to the women's movements around the world, mm. and we should write a pamphlet about it. So we read his letters. He didn't write books, but he wrote letters, and we researched, and we did everything. 
and then we went to see one of the women who had worked with Gandhi a great deal and was still living, Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay, her name is, and she's now becoming much better known. There are two books out about her. She's mm. an amazing woman. And she listened to us patiently, rocking on the veranda, and she said, well, my dear, we taught him everything he knew. So it turned out... Wow, God, that just gave me the chills. <laughs> it turned out that that Gandhi had, if and if you read him, you can see it, you know, had taken his nonviolent tactics from the massive women's movement in India mm. that was trying to get rid of sati, which is the immolation of widows when the husband died, you know, all kinds of terrible things. Yes. We're doing salt marches to the sea to uh, try to do away with British taxes. And those were the tactics he took over. Hmm. So I think sometimes when we admire something, we should look at it carefully because it may have been credited to a man, but I bet it came from a woman. Incredible. I can't wait to read about her. So you spend two years in India, and obviously there's many awakenings happening and a, a sort of new lease on life, you know, a freedom granted to you in London. And you come back to New York. Was there a culture shock? Was it what brought you here? I, I know that at, at that stage it was nearly impossible for a woman to find an apartment, which I'm sure our listeners will find fascinating if they don't know that story. What was the experience at that time? I mean, I came back with, of course, I mean, I'd been living a particular way for two years. And so I, I must have been such a pain in the ass when I came back. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, I, you know, I, my best image for this country was that it was like a big frosted cupcake in the middle of starving, you know. And I kept trying to buttonhole people and tell them that. And and because I was used to tongas and things in India, I didn't want to get in the back of the taxi. I wanted to get next to the taxi driver. You can imagine how annoyed they were. <laughs> they are like, lady, just <laughs> right, leave me alone. Right, right. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but, you know, it was extremely helpful, of course, that I had some picture of how the rest of the world worked. And and one of one of the realizations I had when I came home was that where I lived in Washington and many other places, I could go snow blind. Hello, there were no people of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, India, of course, has the caste system. It has a lot of problems, but people are all different shades. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful for that because it made me realize how crazy it was mm -hmm. and how isolated I was. And is that what made you want to move here? To New York? Yeah. No, I mean, New York was just, you know, I even in college, I used to read the Sunday New York Times and mm. yearn for the... <laughs> and once I visited New York when I was in college to go to the UN, and I was walking through the Broadway district, and I went into a little hole-in-the-wall deli, and there were two showgirls with full showgirl outfits and huge headdresses, and they're saying, and I want a pastrami on rye. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I want to live here. Amazing. I want to live here. <laughs> It's just so, because you could be whoever you were. Yeah. I remember when I, I got my first apartment in college and I went to college in Los Angeles. And the first time I bought myself the New York Times and went to my apartment and sat and opened the paper and just thought, 
I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. Yes, like, it's, 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 I wasn't. I was still a kid, but it was. It was a. There yeah. is a real nostalgia, and it's interesting that you bought the New York Times, not the L.A. Times. Mm-hmm. Well, why was that? I don't know. The New York Times just seems like this sort of bastion of I journalistic agree. I know. integrity. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like New York. I mean, in New York, it, people come here for freedom. I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And as somebody said about L.A., it's as if you tipped the country on its end and everything loose went <laughs> to L.A. <laughs> and I think that— It's different. Right? Yeah, I, I think the cultural shift is really interesting, and I think I think there is a really beautiful sensibility about Los Angeles. But for me, you know, my family emigrated here through Ellis Island. There, There is this New York story— in my heritage, and you're and you're the second generation. I mean, you were born my, here on my mom's side. Yeah, yeah. Right, my right. my dad got his citizenship when I was twelve, um, and my mom was born here. But everybody else, you know, on her fam in her family came here, and I don't know. I remember as a kid, you know, walking through these streets with my family, and I remember seeing the New York Times building. And now it's a weird thing as an you know as an adult. I have a friend who works at the Times, and I get to go to editors' meetings. And I still freak out. I get misty-eyed, you know, when I sit down and, and the editor of the paper walks in. And in hindsight, now I see why when I went to college for my BFA theater degree and thought, I know everything I'm going to do and everything I'm going to be, within a year I was pulling my hair out and I transferred into the journalism school so that I could study journalism and political science. And and that's when I really started working, ironically, as an actor because I had stories to tell. I had people's well, lives that's on what, the line. I mean, we tell stories in any yes. way we can. Yes. Right. No, that's perfect. Right. So that's it, great. It's kind of it's it's interesting now. You know, when you reflect on your life, you can see what was so obvious, but at the time, you had no clue what was sort of brewing for you. And which brings me back to being curious about you know your journalistic career because you came back with this aptitude for the world, and and you came to New York and. As I was mentioning, you know, in the time, you couldn't – it's true, right, that you couldn't rent an apartment because landlords wouldn't rent to single women because, A, they thought you were either too irresponsible to pay your rent or if you were paying your rent, you were clearly only able to do that because you were a prostitute. <laughs> it's like – Yeah, no. <laughs> those no, were our true. options? Right. No. And that was full of craziness. Mm. I mean, even much later when I got an American Express card, I had to get my mother to guarantee it even though I supported my mother. I mean, you know. Well, because a woman couldn't have a credit card in her own name until <laughs> right. 1970. Yeah, and I wasn't married, right? so I, I didn't have a husband to guarantee it, so I had to get my mother to guarantee it. It's so crazy to right. me. And if you were married and, and got a bank loan, you had to sign a baby letter saying you guaranteeing you wouldn't have a baby until the loan was returned. What? <laughs> I mean, maybe not all banks, but a lot of banks, right? That is crazy. The baby letter is a, was an institution, right? I knew you couldn't get a credit card without your... Wow. Wow, wow. I didn't know that. Mm. So... This is the role of older people. It's because mm-hmm. we have hope because we remember when it was worse. Yes. And the role of younger people is to be mad as hell because it's not right now. And that's yes. why we need to work together. I agree with you. We need both those things. And we need we need your perspective. And, and even for me, you know, part of the reason I try to communicate so much with young people and be so active with them on, you know, social channels and in their world in this digital space is because I know I know things they need. You know, I go to, I go to colleges and I speak to girls who are in their 20s 
because I know that I have perspective for them, but I can't do what, this without what do they perspective. Ask you? Oh gosh, they want to know. Um, there's a lot of questions about how to stand up for yourself, how to how to do what you know you need to do or what's right without being afraid. Um, and my big my big you know, hate to break it to you, a secret is I, you'll be afraid, do it anyway. Mm, right. You know, the, those are the no, things. No, well, that's, but that is, the, it's it's mm-hmm. like fear is a sign of growth. Yes. Follow the fear. Yes, right, right? follow the fear. I love that. So when you came here and started trying to work as a journalist, w- was there fear in that choice? Yeah, I mean, I I first, you know, I tried to get a job, an actual job, uh, I mean, at the New York Times, not as a reporter, but I've forgotten in the classified section or something. Mm. Then there was a, I think Eric Severide had a television show that I admired. I tried to get it. And they would say things to me like, you're overeducated, you know, to do this or you're, I don't know. It it just, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I was well trained anyway not to have a job because my father had two points of pride. He never wore a hat which he was supposed to do in his generation. He never had a job. Okay. So I started to freelance for mostly for women's magazines, mm-hmm. also for Show Magazine, which was a big, beautiful arts magazine of the mm. era. And somehow, you know, I've, it's worked. I don't know mm. why. Also, also I, I had a part-time job for Harvey Kurtzman, who was the inventor of Mad Magazine, Oh wow! And he was doing a uh, um, a second magazine called Help for Tired Minds. And it, <laughs> it was a satire magazine with all kinds of cartoonists who were wonderful who worked for the New Yorker, and so so I I did have that as a as a part time job. Interesting. And when do you think the scale started to tip? Because I know that you said in the beginning of freelancing. Freelance for women was, you know, fashion, food, makeup, babies, textured stockings, and what to do on dates in New York. So I didn't, I couldn't do the babies and the food about which I knew nothing, but I did do the textured stockings and what to do on a date. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And and when when did things begin to take a turn? Was it was it when you went and worked undercover? As a Playboy bunny, was that was that sort of expose work? No, that that wasn't very helpful, mm. uh, and it sort of typecast me forever. The, what was helpful was when New York Magazine started, because ah. because then I mean I had been working for Clay Felker, who was an editor at Esquire. I'd done some pieces for him. And what were you writing about for him? Well, he he had assigned me a piece on the contraceptive pill, for instance, which was mm. new then. And so I did this long piece about the development, which was quite fascinating. And he told me I had performed the incredible feat of making sex dull. And he <laughs> sent me back to make it more interesting. <laughs> so so we knew each other, and he was a wonderful editor. And he started New York Magazine with a group with Tom Wolfe and uh, you know Jimmy Breslin and a group mm. of, of wonderful idiosyncratic writers. And at the time, I was the girl writer. You know, I was the mm. the, the one... There were more eventually, but uh, in the beginning, I was the only woman. And and I know you say that that experience, um, the expose on the Playboy Club, in the beginning, once it came out, really made you... I, I heard you say that you learned what it was like to be hung on a meat hook, and I imagine... That well, it, that was when I was working in the club. Right. 
Yeah, that, because you do feel that. You know? Yes, and and so sexualized, and and so you were you witnessed so much just gross harassment, and and I'm curious about you know in the aftermath, you you say that it made you and other people's estimation seem unserious, but that over time, as as feminism was really rooting. Uh, deeply for you that you were glad you'd done it because of what you'd seen? Well, I, I, was, I was glad I did it because it changed, it somewhat improved the working conditions. Mm. It was a problem from the beginning. I mean, the club sued me. I mean, you know, it was endless. But mm. it, did, it did change the, the working conditions. The problem with it was that it also characterized me. And to this day, I'm an extremely old person, Okay. <laughs> and to this day, if people want to say, you know, say, oh, well, she's, you know, what does she know? They'll say, oh, well, she's an ex-bunny. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a problem to this day. And, and wild to me that the clarification doesn't get made because, no, you're not. You went undercover no, for a story. True. That's quite true. But I feel odd about making the clarification because those women were perfectly smart, terrific women, too. Sure, They were of just stuck with this terrible job. No, you're right. right. And, right. and this idea that, that you can be sexual or smart or uh, that you have to be pretty or intelligent, you know, it's, it's such a strange tool of oppression to figure out whatever it is that could be used to reduce you and reduce you with it, whether that's being beautiful or being fat or, or being whatever. The list goes on, the things that they put on women to uh, try to shrink them. It, it, it was also a useful education in de-glamorizing what is supposed to be glamorous, which isn't, and understanding what an idiot Hefner was, you know. I mean, how he had one moment of respect, I have no idea. <laughs> no, he, uh, right. it's a very strange thing that he, that he sold a fantasy that was so wretched and that it managed to catch on. When did you, because, you know, this is feminist work that you're doing as a journalist. When did you actually learn what feminism was? When you first heard the word, was there a stigma around the word? And, and who do you think put the stigma in place? Yeah, I'm sure there was a stigma. I don't quite remember feel, feeling that exactly. I mean, I think that just instinctively, I, like lots of other women, are doing things that are feminist things, hoping no one will notice and punish us too much, <laughs> you know. And then suddenly I realized there was, wait a minute, there's a whole burgeoning movement here. Mm. I'm, and that was exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a little bit in the middle age-wise because I was, say, 10 years younger than the now Betty Friedan generation and 10 years older than the kind of downtown radical, you know. So, And also I wasn't sure I was supposed to join anything because I was a journalist. Mm. So I was learning and observing and writing uh, before I realized, wait a minute, you, you have to also be an activist. I mean, I'd always been working in political campaigns, but not in a movement. Got it. And how do you move between those spaces when you're, when you're moving into that space that's just in the half-age bracket above you and the half-age bracket below you, as an observer, how do you begin to run in those circles and, and get into 
them in the first place to to begin to mm-hmm. write? Well, it, it, it just you just go where your interest carries you and mm. where there are people you trust. And I mean, to this day, most of the women say who uh, I worked with at Ms. Magazine were younger than I, and you know now we're old editors. We have dinner once a month, but they're still younger than I am. So it, you just. You know, age is kind of an accident, so you just go where your interests are. Now, at this point in your life, when you're in all of these arenas, how how often are people asking you, why aren't you married? Do you want to get married? I thought to myself and may have said, well, I'm going to do that. I'm definitely doing that. Just not right now. Mm. <laughs> so it isn't as if you say, this is my future. It's, you're, it goes in increments. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, thanks to the women's movement, I discovered this revolutionary thing that not everybody has to live the same way. Right. Well, that's great. It's, it's amazing. not a paint-by-numbers sheet. <laughs> right, right. I remember seeing you say in an interview that, you know, yeah, no, I think it's great. I just keep pushing it off two more years. Right. And I went, same, girl, same. <laughs> yeah, you too. Yeah, yeah. me too. I, well, I, and I started to joke with people when they would ask me. I'd go, why don't you ask all the men when they're going to grow up and mm-hmm. be worthy partners? Because when they are, like, holler at your girl. <laughs> the, the best answer, which I heard a stand-up comic give and – I wish I knew who it was so I could attribute, but I don't, is I Can't Mate in Captivity. Mm, <laughs> which then became the title of the Esther Perel book, which is so yeah. interesting. She wrote she wrote that book, Meeting in Captivity, which I think is incredible. Um, you you say, or you, you have said, and I would imagine continue to say, that you really identified with Audrey Hepburn's character in Breakfast at Tiffany's with Holly Golightly, and, and that like her, you really didn't want to be put in a cage. And also, if you remember, even in the movie, I mean, the, the Truman Capote's story is, is goes much deeper, but mm. even in the movie, you see that she came from a kind of poor white trash family, mm-hmm. and she marries a much older man in order to have her brother, who has kind of learning disabilities, taken care of. Mm-hmm. And every day, she reads magazines, and every day she w- walks on the dirt road a little further, and mm. one day she doesn't go home. And, you know, that was her background, and then she came to New York and kind of created herself. Mm. Later on, also, I read, I mean, I think there was a whole book about Breakfast at Tiffany's as a film. And it turns out that we were not totally crazy to love it, because it was the first film ever in which a woman was allowed to be sexual unmarried, mm. and not come to a bad end. Wow. It was absolutely the first, which I didn't realize until I read about it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about the films made prior to it because whether or not they said overtly if a woman has agency over her body is sexual, you know, for herself, she'll die, or this is bad, or It was whatever, part of the but... Hayes Office Code, mm-hmm. I think. But it would and just it, happen on It was screen. also true of women's magazines. They couldn't run uh, stories in which um, a woman had sex before marriage and didn't come to a bad end or didn't survive. I mean, there was wow. a formula. Which really marks how revolutionary your piece on birth control was. Because for, for it to be, as you said, you know, uh, un- unsexy, <laughs> to really talk to women about the science of their bodies and their experience with their sexuality and how to take control of that 
you know, I think we now take that a bit for granted. Yes, we should. I hope so. But when you're saying that, also what I'm thinking is, okay, we're here on Manhattan Island. Mm -hmm. Before the Europeans showed up, Mm -hmm. the cultures that were here, as far as we know, and many are still here, Mm -hmm. um, were circular, not hierarchical, were egalitarian. Women Mm -hmm. totally understood how to use herbs, abortifacients, timing, have children, not have children. You know, I mean, yes. it, they, they, they were not patriarchal, or at least a lot of them were not patriarchal cultures. Mm-hmm. And all my friends, women friends in Indian country, make jokes about, you know, what did Columbus call primitive? Equal women. <laughs> wow. And actually, I sent away for his letters, Columbus's letters, mm-hmm. and he's writing a, with astonishment about... Why it is that uh, the local women object to being taken as sex slaves for his crew? He can't understand that. It seems, Mister. So it, it's important to remember that we've been denied the history of the land we're on. Yes. We mostly study it from Columbus forward. That's changing a little bit, but not and a lot. we've been denied the history of how we evolved. To your point, in a circular egalitarian society pre ownership agriculture yeah. slavery patriarchy where where women and and you know when when you hear about cultures with elders and the grandmothers and the women they go to for the medicine and you you know you look at indigenous culture in the amazon and the way that they have ultimate reverence for mother earth and her systems we haven't always been erased no no and and I think, although any historian probably would have a fit at my saying this, that <laughs> that say it, it anyway. <laughs> it, it feels as if, uh, for a series of reasons, patriarchy developed in Europe, mm-hmm. and since that meant compelling women to have children they wouldn't otherwise have had, Europe got overpopulated, and had to invent racism and colonialism in order to invade other people's countries and bring goods back. So I think colonialism and patriarchy are very connected. That's a really interesting theory. When we talk about, you know, Columbus's letters and, and his astonishment that women didn't want to be sex slaves, who knew? Um, in in the era in which, you know, you began working as a journalist which, and we're now having, you know, so many of these conversations in even more forward ways, about what's happening to women in the workplace, you you talk about how then there was no word for sexual harassment. It was just called life if your boss pressed up against you or, or as you said, you know, your boss would give you the, the option, like, do you want to go to a hotel with me for the afternoon or do you want to, you know, mail all my letters? Mm-hmm. As though those two are equally weighted options. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you realize that you weren't crazy at the way that you felt and what you were observing from this patriarchal system. Well, I mean, system. I was lucky enough. I was freelancing, so there was not a job I could be fired from. So mm. I was lucky that I didn't have to submit in some way. But I thought it was just something that you had to do. You had to sort of jolly along your editor without going to bed with him and still getting assignments. You had to mm. figure out you know, how to do like that. It's like a tightrope walk. Yeah, and when other women came to New York, we would always share our lists of editors you could work with and editors you couldn't, you know, mm. where there was kind of always an underground yeah, those whisper help, networks. helping each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 
the actual term sexual harassment came about in the early 70s, very early 70s, when a whole lot of women in from Cornell University, I think, had been at summer jobs, and they were trying to describe what happened to them mm-hmm. on summer jobs. Then we did, we, Miss Magazine, did a cover story on sexual harassment, which the supermarkets took off the stands. It was too controversial. Even though we used puppets on the cover to illustrate sex, you know, in order not to be too shocking. But anyway, they took it off the stands. Then Catherine McKinnon, our great feminist legal mind, wrote sexual harassment into sex discrimination law. Mm. Then there were three cases brought because of sexual harassment, all by black women. I mean, that's, you know, not only, I mean, black women have always been a disproportionate part of the leadership and the numbers of the women's movement is certainly clear there. Yeah, we should always be following black women. And so so that, you know, that was its kind of progression. Mm-hmm. And with Anita Hill's testimony, it entered mm-hmm. into the public dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, even though, of course, she was wrongly disbelieved. Mm-hmm. Though there were two other women he had sexually harassed waiting to be to testify, and they wouldn't call them. Unbelievable. So that you can see the progression. And mm-hmm. now, of course, we have Time's Up and Me Too, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's global. Yes. But interesting to your point, you know, uh, the leadership of black women has always been at the forefront. Yes, I, 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 yeah, I should Burke, say you know. that in the, in the very first year of the life of Miss Magazine, we did a public, we published a public opinion poll by Lewis Harris mm. that I later learned a woman in his firm had done. He did, but anyway, <laughs> and it, it turned out that they were asking about the women's movement or feminism and issues. Mm. And something like 60% of, of black women supported it, and only 30-some percent of white women. And that was in 72. So it's, we should not be surprised at the results of the last presidential election. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, what's happened is that the women's movement has been regarded as white to some extent, and the civil rights movement as black men to some And black women have not in either case, been seen as the leaders that they always have been. Hmm. So there's, you know, we're trying, I mean, I'm working with two friends on a book, and lots of people are trying to say, wait a minute, let's tell the story of who really, I mean, just personally, I learned feminism more from black women than from white women. Mm -hmm. Flo Kennedy was my speaking partner. She was a decade older than me funny and smart and a lawyer and outrageous and how did you two meet oh, gosh i don't remember exactly isn't she, that lovely when you have someone in your life and you feel like they've always been there yeah i i'm sure at meetings or movement things or mm-hmm. something she had been part of now and then she gave up on now and she also gave up on the law though she was a well-trained lawyer civil rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. She always said the law is a one asset at a time proposition and what you do is have to do is stop the ringer. So she mm. became an activist and we uh, traveled and spoke together for a long time. And how do you think you two influenced each other? I think she influenced me more than I influenced her. Although, you know, probably both of us together could go places that neither one of us could, could go. 
separately. Mm-hmm. But I'm so grateful to her. And I, and I there is a, a woman from the University of Maryland who's written a play about her, which is going to be, I hope, performed. I mean, it was performed once in New York as well, and I hope it comes comes back and plays for her. It's a wonderful play. Mm-hmm. And can you talk to me about your friendship with Dorothy as well? Well, Dorothy Pittman Hughes was, let's see, I, I had written about her for New York Magazine mm. because child care centers were obviously needed and just beginning. And she had one of the very first multiracial, non-sexist, I mean, you know, this was the lingo of the time, right? <laughs> Multi-racist, non-sexist child care centers, the West 80th Street child care centers. So... I went to write about it for my column in New York Magazine. She had a young Italian white radical guy assistant who was having such a hard time because the woman he was in love with wouldn't marry him because he didn't want her to work after marriage. See, he was radical on everything but women, if you know what I mean. Right. So (laughs) Dorothy and I had kind of looked at each other and sat him down and managed to connect gender to race and everything else, which actually worked. They're still married. Amazing. So we thought, well, if we could do that with one person, maybe we can. So when I started to get invitations to speak, and I was way too scared to do it on my own, I spent my life avoiding speaking in public, I asked Dorothy if she would, because she was fearless, Mm. if she would come with me. And we did that until because she had a baby and it was she wanted to stay home more you know but we did it for a while sure and that's such a you know now we call that spending your privilege you know and passing the mic and that's an incredible thing when you think about the experience you had with the gentleman who worked for her does that sort of harken to when when you guys were really in the midst of fighting for the ERA and you were looking at women as this big community of interest as you say you you talk about how you guys would show up at these things and protest. And, and, and you said that the injustices were so great that surely if we could just explain them clearly to people, they would want to fix them. And you said that in the 70s, and I feel like so many of us still feel it now. What what do you think is is the through line here, you know? What is the what is the media's role? Because as we know, thanks to the fight of so many of you, you know, you and Flo and Dorothy and all of these other incredible women, nobody's going to hand us anything. Nobody's giving women anything. Nobody's giving oppressed people anything. It requires protest and potentially jail time and organization and, and, and a real strategic fight. So... When, when we think about this idea of we want to cause a revolution, not simply reform, what is it like to be having this conversation in 1977 and in 2019? What's, what's very different about now is that we are the majority. Mm-hmm. Then we were some crazy people, you know, <laughs> having a demonstration or mm-hmm. maybe 20% or 30%. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the public opinion polls, the majority of Americans agree with the basic issues of social mm-hmm. justice movements, of climate change. of That's a huge difference. Yes. However, what we didn't learn, I think, well enough, is that the most dangerous time is right after a success. So mm-hmm. precisely because we've changed the majority consciousness, the third of the country that still 
believes in the old hierarchy and feels deprived if they don't benefit from the old hierarchy is mad as hell. Hmm. And I think that's that's what we're what we're seeing now. And perhaps we got a little too docile because we thought we were winning, and now we see how the scales are being tipped back in the other direction. Yes. Uh, well, I I I I do think that we just didn't learn. I mean, maybe in the beginning we didn't understand how long it would take. I think that's true. Mm. But I think also we didn't learn in history well enough that the most dangerous time is after a victory. Mm. Uh, lynching didn't happen during slavery. It happened after emancipation. Mm. So, you know, what we're seeing now is a backlash against a majority-changed consciousness. Mm. It, it's symbolized to me by the occasional middle-aged white guy, not to, I mean, there are good middle-aged white guys. Yeah. I'm not trying to characterize it. But, There's you know, great who, ones out there. Yeah, will, My dad's awesome. <laughs> will, will say to me, a black woman took my job. That's the classic thing. And I always say, well, who said it was your job? You know, because that's, it's mm. the entitlement that's mm -hmm. the problem. But he was raised to believe it was his job. So he may well be voting for Trump. Right. And I have sympathy for people who feel like they're losing. I, I truly do. But what's interesting to me is this idea that someone else should lose that your success should come at someone else's expense. And what I believe is that on, on the side of those of us really fighting to advance equality, we want everyone to succeed. Well, also, I wonder how many of them really did succeed. I mean, right. inheritance, inherited wealth. I mean, you know, look at, look at Trump. I mean, yeah. he, he would be richer than he is if he'd only invested what he inherited. He's right. a terrible businessman. Terrible. And, you know, there's so much that comes mm. with inheritance or it comes with where you live because you can't get a mortgage because it's yes. redlined because you live in a black neighborhood. I mean, it doesn't have to do with natural mm. talent much of the time. But when you bring up something like, you know, an inheritance, someone like a Trump, where we see a lot of men like him who fail up and who are applauded even for failing – as though it's some sort of success. It's almost like a magic trick to me. I'm going, does no one see what's in front of our faces here? Well, everybody in New York saw it, and we voted 96% against him. Yes. We knew he was a lousy You should business. trust the people who know <laughs> right. who know the people running. Right, right. But why, why do you think that fa even failure is celebrated in men, whereas ambition and drive are so traditionally Because, I, I mean, I think that's the way that patriarchy is enforced every day. So mm. if you're... Um, a man who wins, you're celebrated. If you're you're liked, let's just never mind celebrated. You're mm -hmm. liked, mm -hmm. and if you're a woman who loses, you're liked. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman who wins, like Hillary, mm -hmm. up to the presidency. Well, actually, she did win by yes. popular vote. You're not liked because it's not feminine. It's not right. It's unbecoming, it's not, right? Somehow, and do you think that applies to women's anger? Because angry women are punished they're yes challenged yeah. they're they're told that they're bad why why is anger perceived negatively if it comes from us because we have so much to be angry about i think about it as sacred <laughs> rage yeah i think that being angry about injustice and suffering is is a sacred kind of well rage. And, and just i mean you, you know obviously 
racially too. I mean, an angry mm-hmm. black man or an angry black yeah. woman is penalized because because you know they they're right to be angry. They would you know and yeah. women. It upsets the whole. Mm-hmm. But there's power something power structure. I think there's something about when you are angry and you come from a group that has been historically subjugated by this patriarchy, that the inherent judgment of our anger is really coming from the judgment that, quote unquote, we don't know our place. Yes. No, that's the same thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that we, you know, we shouldn't be angry. We should be grateful for the crumbs that mm-hmm. we're that we're getting. And actually, I think this is a big reason why the rates of depression are higher among women than men in general, mm. because depression is anger turned inward. Depression you know, when is you, anger when you turned inward. When you can't inward. Wow. express it. Yeah. Right. That's fair. Hmm. I would say that rings very true for the low points in my life. Oh, my God. I'm like, oh, that just felt like an Oprah moment. I'm like, I'm like okay. Oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I have a question about a particularly angry man for you because I really mm. thought that this was just so legendary. Nixon had some things to say about you and about Ms. Magazine that when I listened to those tapes, I was like, that motherfucker. I mean, I was just mad. And you came out swinging, and you said he was the clearly the most sexually insecure chief of state since Napoleon. <laughs> you said that the less secure the male, the more he has to prove, the more dangerous he is as a leader. Do you think that that title from Nixon now rests firmly on Trump's shoulders? Of the most of, sexually insecure? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to know because he is such a narcissist. Hmm. It's way beyond anything to do with sex. I mean, he's 100% predictable because Trump will follow slavishly any praise. Mm -hmm. Comes from Russia, comes from Saudi Arabia, doesn't matter. He will follow Mm -hmm. it. And he will lash out at the smallest criticism, Mm -hmm. no matter where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And that is all those psychiatrists kindly told us, you know, at length in a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. is a narcissistic personality disorder. So mm-hmm. he's 100% predictable. Mm. In a way, the people around him who know better are more guilty. Yeah, mm. I agree with that. When, when we think back at the criticism that you and, and that the magazine were receiving, I, I would love to take the listeners back a little bit who may not know the history of, of how Ms. Magazine came to be. And and really what a revolution it was, by the way, to even have Ms. classified as a prefix for women, that we weren't defined by our marital status, but but solely as we wanted to be. And and when you began the magazine, there were there were so many people who said, it's gonna fail. It'll never last more than eight printings. And it and in a time when print was going through transition, you you couldn't print enough issues of this thing. What did that experience feel like how were you picking stories how were you how were you creating this new platform and who were you doing it with well you know we had our group of editors we maybe went a little overboard in the democracy department because we listed ourselves alphabetically so nobody knew who was doing it. <laughs> we had uh, the great uh, resource of letters because from the moment we did a preview issue we were just inundated with letters hmm. and just from reading them you know we could see that women were later were waiting till later to have 
first babies, for instance, so we should do a story about that. Mm. Or we, I mean, you, you know, they, they were our source of information, and they're now, and we saved every last one. Wow. And also women from other countries would drop into our editorial meetings when they were in town. So it was, it was like a cross between uh, a magazine or a newspaper office, a dormitory, and a movement uh, office all in, the, all in the same place. It was fun. Incredible. And scary because we were always afraid we were going to fail and disgrace the movement somehow. Mm. But that's when people started to be a little less flippant about the movement. And they went from dismissing you to ridiculing you to really realizing what a threat the women's movement was. And what did that shift feel like in culture? Well, we'd always been being ridiculed. Actually, I think that that uh, the experience of moving from ridicule to hostility was a good because <laughs> I thought well, at least they're taking us more seriously. I know when you're that met sounds with hostility, crazy, but, you know you're doing yeah, something right. 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 Interesting. Right. And and what about the hostility that you received from other women? Because it's it's such a wild thing. Yeah. Well, that's of course. I mean, the, the very most painful thing is when somebody who is your ally. And friend, or you thought, you know, disagrees with you in some way, and and that happens, especially mm-hmm. because in the black community, you ca- they call it the crabs in the barrel phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is that you know if everybody's at the bottom of the barrel and one crab starts up the side, mm-hmm. another crab will pull it down. In in Australia, mm-hmm. it's called the tall poppy tall syndrome. Poppy syndrome yeah. yeah. So if we've internalized this kind of hierarchy and we see a member of our group defying it and moving upward, sometimes someone will say, how dare they? That's just another whatever like me. Mm. And that creates competition Mm. among the group that should be unified. And I would say that's the single most painful thing. And do you think that some of that had to do with the way the press alternately vilified and sexualized you because you were so lauded and criticized for your looks and for your hair and for your wardrobe, which is like you are still my style icon. <laughs> it just, you know, if you wore a miniskirt or if your, you know, hair was down or you, you know, you you love having beautiful fingernails, like your femininity was both criticized and also it was almost held against you in a way that, well, that I you think were the, getting there. The most painful thing, I think, not the most painful thing, but a painful thing, is that if you work your ass off and then you're told it's only because of your looks that you got it published mm-hmm. or something, you know, that that's, that's painful. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, it demeans your intellect, your effort. But that, your it doesn't, commitment. it probably doesn't happen as much to writers as it does to actors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sit still, look pretty, shut up and act, all, all of that. I mean, it's such a strange thing because I think like shut up and bank tell. <laughs> Shut up and doctor. Like, I, I don't know. And and I think about how lucky those of us who get to travel and embed in other communities are for work. And that's really the job of an actor. You mm-hmm. know, people watch an award show on TV and they think that that's what it is. But what it really is, is being far away from home in this strange sort of, you know, band of, of brothers. Like we joke that on set, it's just a bunch of hoodlums trying to make some art. And, and we're... It's union guys and construction workers and transpo drivers, and, and we're out there, 
trying to make something, mm-hmm. but also learning each no, other's well, that's, communities. I mean, that, that's a community, uh, and the, yeah. like the magazine was a community. And yes. you're, when you do your shows, it's a community. No, yeah. it's 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 wonderful and it's satisfying. But I I only really learned lately from being part of Times Up mm. how much more difficult it often is for mm. women who are actors mm. because. First of all, there's often only one of you on a set, yep. or maybe two, but not many. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you're competing with each other for jobs. Mm-hmm. And in the Time's Up meetings, I noticed that w- the hunger to talk to each other. So, The hunger for community. Yeah, so I said, yeah. you know, that's, you, you, we need to have talking circles. Yes. We can't do it here in a group of a thousand at the moment, you know, or three thousand or whatever we were in the auditorium. But there was but a hung there was a hunger for that. Yes. And I and I hope and believe that's going on. What do you think was the best part of being on the road for you from all of your travel? I didn't set out to do that exactly. I mean, I started, I didn't set out to be a speaker and that's Mm -hmm. the most of the time I was on the road, although sometimes for stories, but mostly for Mm -hmm. speaking. So it was a surprise, but there is what I think of as an on the road state of mind, Mm -hmm. which it kind of forces you to be a hundred percent in the present. I like that. And you can actually do that when you leave your door in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk to the people or whatever. It is a state of mind. And th- that's, that's very valuable. I think the road teaches that. Yes. Looking back, wh- what are the moments that really stand out to you, you know, whether it's traveling or speaking? Is there something that you look back at and think that that was really amazing? Actually not, <laughs> because I live in the future. I'm always thinking, well, if What's we did next? this, maybe that would happen. <laughs> mm, you're out there working on the yeah, systems. Right, you're using right. the building blocks. <laughs> right. Right. No, I mean, because that's what's, that's what's fun about organizing. Yeah. Or writing or putting ideas together. Yes. So, I, I mean, there's certainly plenty of times in the past that I feel very deeply about, but I think it's more associated with people. Yes. You know, that I look at Alice Walker and I remember when we did something, or I look at some, you know. Mm. um, It's the memories you shared. Yeah, I don't, or I look at the editors of Ms. and we together remember some amazing thing that we did that, right? I don't keep a journal. When I did the road book, I had to research. I had to go back to my diary, see where it was, and then ask other people (laughs) to make sure that I was. Reporting it right, yeah. Mm. What do you think when you look at the future, as as where you say that you live? What stories do you think aren't getting enough attention right now? And and where and where are you focusing on with the work of your foundations and mm-hmm. your funds? Well, the the foundations, the Miss Foundation, and and you know the other groups that are working internationally, are supporting groups on the ground that are which is the important thing, you know, mm-hmm. and being change agents right there and changing situations. Sometimes one can do it through the media. I mean, I did, Amy Richards and I did do eight documentaries on violence against women for mm-hmm. vice in mm-hmm. different countries around the world. But I think if I were to identify the single thing that is still driving me most crazy, <laughs> it is that 
things are viewed in in silos. Mm. So sexism and racism are viewed in a silo, though they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. And another example of the same sort is that the single biggest indicator of whether any country in the world will be violent against another country hmm. you, or has violence in the street is not poverty, mm-hmm. not religion, not access to natural resources or even degree of democracy. It's violence against females. Yes. And that's because not because our lives are any more important than men, but because that's what people see first in their families, dominance or violence of females, and it makes Kids grow up thinking it's normal and natural, and it starts the hierarchical thinking. And that so is, we should be treating it as a public health crisis. Well, and it, it should be part of it. Should be the basis of our foreign policy. Yes. If, wow. if if we looked at groups, say in Afghanistan, you know, we never would have supported the wrong people as we did. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that the then Soviet supported government in Afghanistan was overturned by the Mujahideen was because, as it said in the Washington Post, (laughs) they were letting girls go to school. They were letting marriages happen without the permission of something. And they were letting women come to political meetings. And we supported the other side. And I remember at the time being in, for a completely different reason, we were, some bunch of women were in the State Department for some meeting and I got up and I said, you know, you're, we're on the wrong side in that war. But they looked at me as if I was crazy, you know. But we were on the wrong side. And yes. look what, so if you can recognize a terrorist group by the polarization of the male-female roles, and you can recognize a more peaceful and democratic group by the fact that there's not much, you know, there's quite mm. porous and flexible. But we don't, that's not part of our national view, to put it mildly, on Mm -hmm. the contrary. So you mentioned a couple of things about books. But when you look back at My Life on the Road and Revolution from Within, and now your your newest book, The Truth Will Set You Free, but first it will piss you off. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, I can't wait to read it. (laughs) What has the learning process about yourself been like in writing and... What can you tell us about mm. the new book that's coming? Well, the I don't know how much I've learned about myself, actually. <laughs> I'm not the most introspective person in the world. But it is interesting to go back and read things that you've read in the past. You know, it is helpful. And you do, I do, actually, I do more and more realize that events in my childhood or particular events influenced me. You do, you do realize that. Mm-hmm. But first of all, the next book, "The Truth Will Set You Free," but first, is a book of quotes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not a narrative book, mm-hmm. except that I have written a long introduction and a preface to all the chapters and so on, which meant it took me much longer to do this book than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> but I love quotes, you know. I mean, I mm-hmm. just love. I think of them as the poetry of everyday life, you yes. know, because they convey meaning in a way that can be shouted in a crowd 
or can be uh, mm. easily translated into another language, or uh, I don't know. I just think they're they're useful and fun, and I hope that the book will cause people to make their own quotes or find the ones they love because I've left a space at the end of the book oh, for people to write their own mm-hmm. in. Right. Oh, I love that to join the conversation with you. Well, just to to put down quotes that they find or mm-hmm. or that they originate. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they, they kind of they're like it's like putting a note in the bottle in a bottle and sending it out to the to sea mm. because they land places you never expect. Yes, I love that. I'm curious because I've seen many times that you define yourself as a hopeaholic, and you said earlier that hope is a form of planning. And I wonder what gives you hope. What what gives you the inspiration to keep it all going? Well, first of all, just as a matter of common sense, I'm not going to let anybody take hope away because then you're defeated before you even start. Yes. So, you know, just I understand that it's not wrong to be a hopeaholic, mm. although you can overdo it. It's true. Maybe I overdo <laughs> But what, what gives me hope for so so many things women and uh men you know who are wronged for any unjust reason are speaking up mm-hmm. in in a way that that we haven't before mm-hmm. and it's you know it's really making a difference i mean i do think we finally have an idea that we could be and this is the shortest quote i've ever managed to <laughs> put this in you know what we want Linked and not ranked. Hmm. Linked and not ranked. Which was that. how we originally were in a circle. Yes. Yeah. That that feels hopeful to me, too. So I, I could do this with you all day, but we, me too. We do have, fun. you do have a place to go. <laughs> me we can too, have to a coin talking a phrase. Circle. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag. We can have a talking circle later. Okay. But the, the last question that I would love to ask you, the title of the podcast is Work in Progress. I think there's so it's many people. It's a nice people. pun. Thank you. I think there's so many people who, you know, the world looks at and thinks, well, they've got it all figured out. And the reality is that anyone in the public eye or, or who runs a company or, you know, who does anything figured out knows that they're just still trying to figure it out. So I'm curious for you, with all of this incredible life and knowledge and activism and organizing and history, under your belt, where you sit today, what feels like a work in progress for you, whether it's personal or professional or political and anything that comes to mind, really? Well, I have two books that I've signed contracts <laughs> and want to do hmm. that I haven't done. Hmm. Right. So you have, you have some deadlines. Yeah, I have some deadlines. Right? And, and, and not, you know, deadlines just hopefully serve to make you do what you want to do anyway, mm-hmm. to terrorize you enough to actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love it here. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would not, you know? So here on Earth, you mean? Yeah, right. It's mm. just so infinitely interesting and angering and worthwhile and surprising. Yeah. It's always surprising. That's exciting. So uh, now I'm not so crazy that I don't realize how old I am. So, I, I, well, I'm a little crazy because I do deny it in in my head. 
I mean, I've outlived both my parents already. So I try to recognize that. And I try, I, I really don't want to die saying, but. <laughs> so I do try to think about that. Sure. But um, we'll see. Fair enough. Thank you so much. No, thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.